0: City University Television presents
1: The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre
0: This seminar, playwright, director,
2: choreographer
3: the American Theatre Working in the Theatre Seminars, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Now, in their 30th year, these seminars give you the opportunity to learn from the professionals as they share their experiences in working in the theatre. Today's seminar is with a panel of playwrights and directors. These are the artists who provide the creative heart of the theatre, and it's their work that we will learn about while we discover how the magic of theatre is created. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing. And now I would like to introduce our moderator for this seminar, Jeffrey Eric Jenkins, critic and new editor of the Best Plays series. Would you now take it away, Jeffrey?
4: Thank you, Isabel. Uh, I want to in- uh, introduce our ex- distinguished group of playwrights and directors to you today. Uh, These are the people who create theatre works that move us, thrill us, and remind us of our place in the human community. It's a a, a particularly distinguished group that have extensive credits, but I'll be brief in my uh, descriptions today. Uh, First, I want to introduce uh, director Gene Sachs. He's a three-time Tony Award winner. currently represented off-Broadway by the production of Mr. Goldwyn, a masterly director of comedy. Next is playwright Peter Parnell, who is represented on Broadway by the production of QED. Peter Parnell. (laughs) Next is John Guare. John Guare may be familiar to most people as a playwright, but he is also a Tony Award winner as a book writer of Two Gentlemen of Verona. And he is also represented on Broadway now by Sweet Smell of Success, John Gwere.
0: And a play that starts previews tonight.
4: And a play that starts previews tonight. <laughs> at, Signature at, Signature Theater. at Signature Theatre. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Gwere. <laughs> <laughs> to my immediate left is Dan Sullivan. Dan Sullivan is a longtime Broadway veteran and a, re- a veteran of the resident theater movement as well. He is currently represented on Broadway for his Tony winning direction in Proof. Dan Sullivan. <laughs> Next to Dan Sullivan is Mary Zimmerman. <coughs> Excuse me. Mary is a an adapter and director whose magical work Metamorphoses recently won the Lucille Lortel Award. Welcome Mary Zimmerman. And next to Mary Zimmerman is John Robin Bates. Mr. Bates is a playwright and adapter who is most recently represented on Broadway by the production of Hedda Gabler that starred Kate Burton. John Robin Bates. (coughs) Now, I'd like to uh, start today with uh, Mr. Sachs. Uh, Mr. Sachs, I'm wondering over the years the, your your craft must have changed in the the past well shall I say forty years that it 's been <laughs> that you 've been uh, haunting the boards and directing and acting. Can you share with us how your craft has changed the collaborative process has changed in that time uh, i 'm
5: not sure it has <laughs> uh, I guess I no longer uh, Approve of the double take, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the greatest thing that, it, well, that that ever was. I could do a triple take <laughs> <But> <laughs> after a while uh, you hurt your neck, <laughs> but uh, uh, then I saw just you know only about ten years ago how uh fruitless it was and how it was out of fashion. (laughs) And you you were really – people would scoff at you, (laughs) (laughs) even in the street. And uh, so, I think the style of comedy has gotten uh, softer, more believable, and less uh, obvious. People seem to be smarter today. They get the joke. You don't have to underline it. And uh, but I, I'm sure there. I hadn't thought a lot about the changes, of it, but uh, c- I think they go along with the changes of of people, of life, of uh, fashion. Uh, Just as clothes do, or uh, anything else we do. Uh,
4: Does it still feel as fresh and new every time? Uh, The the great British director, Tyrone Guthrie, used to say that he worried about falling into habits over his long career. Do you still feel – how does it stay fresh for you each time?
5: You say to yourself,
4: fresh. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: I don't know. I mean, that's one of the the tricks of all acting, uh, whether you call it a trick or not. It's uh, spontaneity. Uh, you have to pretend it's the first time you did it, and so you have to rely on new thoughts to do it. Make it urgent for yourself. Uh, if the old preparation doesn't work, it gets stale. Uh, you have to think of something new. What will get me there uh, with a new thought? Uh, I worked with Guthrie. He was wonderful. I, uh, I'll give you a short story if you don't mind. Lovely. I was in a show uh, in in Canada, which we brought to Broadway. I've forgotten the name of it, but he was directing it, and I was playing a, a, an English instructor in, in a in a Canadian college, and, I, and they were having a, a party, a costume party. And I had a speech that I – was very funny. And for the first two weeks, Guthrie would laugh at it. He thought it was wonderful. And uh, then he got bored with it. And uh, he started putting the costumes on people. And he had one girl crossing in front of me with an <coughs> elephant mask. And finally, I said (laughs) – I stopped in the middle of the speech, and I said – by this time, I I called him Tony. I said, Tony, (laughs) Uh, uh, I said, are they going to listen to me? I don't think they're going to be hearing what I say. And he said, quite right. (laughs) 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 I've been very naughty. (laughs) <laughs> he just took the mask – I think he made her go behind me. <laughs> but, uh, that he, he, he would get very bored with uh, things he did.
4: And uh, uh, who could blame him? It was boring! <laughs> when, when we're looking at directing and playwriting, what we're also thinking about, I think, is collaboration. That's really the… That's what theater is all about. It's all about collaboration. And I'm wondering, um, John Robin Bates, in your work recently, you've been collaborating with Henrik Ibsen, who Mm -hmm. may be in a room with you. His words are in a room with you. I'm wondering, did you use a literal translation, and then you've you've adapted, you've perhaps updated a little bit. um, uh, Not much updating, really. It's it's more like.
6: It's more like gentle house-cleaning, and a little one-room gets renovated. and it's, uh, But it's Ibsen, you know, and it's I- – in fact, um, it was Dan who asked me to do it. Dan was going to direct it in Los Angeles. And um, many of the translations were felt very, very English, felt very British, and, and they felt like there was a sort of big red curtain, and it was, yeah. you know, the old Vic. And it was some very just subtle task of – of, uh, or not-so-subtle task, of clearing away the, c- the the tone and changing the tone, and maybe speeding it up a little bit, and and maybe there are a couple less sort of bustles and entrances and, uh, you know, less frogging and ormolu and decoration, and it's more just action. Um, uh, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think Ibsen would have – I kept sort of, you know, Arguing with myself about what Ibsen would say, and I never heard back from him. So <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: that was the question. Was Dan, I was Dan, <laughs> was p-
6: Dan, I thought, was the sort of Ibsen. Yes, I chaired <laughs> Ibsen during he that. was like, <laughs> He was like the general yeah, in right. the, por- the portrait, uh, the thought. <laughs> you know. well, and he had a slightly disapproving look, but I just got used to
4: that. Well, that's a good place to, to sort of shift. Uh, Dan, What is that process, that process of collaboration? We have on the stage here two of your collaborators. You've collaborated with uh, John Robin Bates, you've collaborated with Peter Parnell. Mm -hmm. What is that process? How does that process work for you as a director? How do you take care of that process?
7: Well, I've sort of collaborated more with Peter as a producer, really. Uh, uh, And that that process changes from writer to writer, uh, really. Some writers are completely unapproachable, (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, and uh, guidance, if you want to call it that, uh, uh, has to be uh, somewhat more subtle. Uh, uh, (coughs) uh, uh, But I think that, uh, you know, you you look for people who are like-minded, so that you can speak a common language when you uh, approach any any text. also has to do, d- to do with the degree of work that has to be done on any given text, also. So it's going to change the, with the personalities that you're working with.
4: That's a, you sort of raise an interesting question, I think, and that is, uh, when it comes to working with new collaborators, certainly there must develop a kind of shorthand uh, when you're working with people you've worked with before. What's it like when you work with a new collaborator? Do you look forward to it? Does that enliven things? Peter, would you uh, address that? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I continually look forward to it, because most of the directors I work with won't work with me again. So <laughs> I have to <laughs> go on <laughs> to another director. And in the case of uh, Cider House Rules, there were two directors, and, and Dan was the producer, the original producer. And um, and, and actually, I'm, I'm well in touch with both both of those directors, and they were working together. That and, and that multiplied, the for me, the uh, – the the, uh, the difficulties and th- I guess the joys in some ways of uh, the experience, but that was was hard. I I, uh, I think I think with such – this is a adaptation of a John Irving book and and the the uh, th- there was such a, an enormous amount of material that we were we were going through that uh, uh, and and there was a c- uh, this common source material. So the directors were very much hands on in a good way with me from the beginning. Uh, And that was actually refreshing, that I could produce material quickly and then get a a very quick response from them about what seemed to be working, what wasn't working, from from both the draft stage on into into obviously into production.
4: And when you were working on uh, Cider House Rules, which, uh, if folks don't know the work completely, it's a two-part, seven-hour sweeping epic of uh, adaptation of the John Irving book. Uh, when you were working on that wasn 't Irving at the same time developing a film version of it
1: yeah he w- he'd been trying for years and had done a number of drafts of the screenplay uh, and was w- had been working with different uh, film directors on the way too and the The, the, the timing actually worked out that, that we we produced our our play uh, uh, and and got it down from from uh, eight hours down to about six hours, uh, first in Seattle at the Seattle Rep mm-hmm. and then in Los Angeles at the Taper, uh, just around the time that, the, that, that John did get the, the movie finally on. Um, and the play was actually – he did, a, thought a be- I thought, a beautiful job uh, of scooping out a lot of the m- his own material for the screenplay, but it was, that was actually quite different, and we were going for something that was uh, a little bit more closely applied to, to the <coughs> book itself. So. So he was able to do, to do his, his adaptation in two hours of, of movie, as compared to uh, uh, our six hours. But
4: <laughs> And what is, that, what is that process like? I, I asked uh, Robbie Bates about, you know, having Ibsen in the room with him. What is that process like when you're thinking about, uh, you know, John Irving, and he's still very much with us?
1: Yeah. He, the thing was, John, uh, uh, by his own, you know, he, he from the beginning – first f- has great interest in movies but doesn't particularly you know have a great interest in, in theater and was a little bit i think sort of uh, didn't know what to think of the fact that we were felt very passionately about trying to get this this book on the stage uh, and he stayed out of it and I was you know grateful i mean we, we he sort of said to me from the beginning don't don't you know go and do what you're doing i, I think once he understood what it was we were trying to do uh, there was a, then there was a period after he saw the the production, uh, in a very good way actually, where he was we had several long conversations about where the the production was going in terms of especially the second the second half of the evening and the problems which he was also facing with his, with his movie. So so uh, we had talks about that, too, because he sent me the screenplay and wondered what I thought of certain things. It was actually an interesting uh, experience. Do I you
4: think, think, maybe, that Cider House Rules, the, the two-part epic, uh, helped him to solve some of those problems? I, you know, I- they are very
1: different. I, I think I think he was able to see uh, I, I don't think it I, no I don't I don't think it really helped him solve. I think uh, one of the most uh, one of the things he said to me was that he felt that, <coughs> that the that the humor that was in the book came through very strongly with the use of narrative and on stage mm-hmm. and that and that that was something that good or not he was going to probably lose a lot of in the movie
4: and there is a difference in tone there. That mm-hmm. Mary Zimmerman you work In a slightly different way than uh, we often think about developing works, you adapt classic tales, ancient tales, and and bring them to the stage with these sort of magical productions. But you work in a slightly—we often think of the uh, authority of the director uh, in the rehearsal hall with the playwright, with the designers, with the um, actors. And in your case, there's a slightly different. Focus. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
8: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't write anything until I'm in rehearsal. I don't write the the act of making the script um, and the act of directing it or not are not separate. I write every night or every morning right before going into rehearsal, and there's this base text that the actors ha- are sort of reading if they can. But I'm also sometimes doing texts that are five thousand or three thousand pages long, and they're not they're not gonna gonna read them, but. Um, I mean I'm I'm sort of like I I take I often take really large texts and in a way my task is to find the structure of just an evening for them. They're often episodic texts. So it's an act of, you know, being cunning in the sort of arrangement of them. And and what episodes I tend to choose or be drawn towards often is dependent on who I've already cast. Like, I think this actor or that will excel. I can sort of see them doing this. Or I have a very strong visual idea of how to do this episode and not such a strong visual idea of how to do this other one. Or in the case of Metamorphoses, the, you know, there's like three hundred tales in Ovid. The ones that sort of make it into the show are the ones that can benefit from, from the water. It's done in a pool of water that, that makes sense that way or are added to that way and my strongest collaborator in a way aside from the original text but in the traditional sense of, cl- of people who are alive that you can have lunch with and stuff <laughs> are um, <laughs> are my designers you know because a set design works it, you know they ha- they have to be building the set even before you're in rehearsal just that's the physical way it has to happen and so my designers and I are always looking for a set that's going to be constantly full of surprise and challenge and and have character and be defined and yet not confining or overly dictatorial in what's going to happen. And often, I find that I'm scripting to exploit the set. You know, I'm scripting to, to use every trap door that we've put in it or every ability to fly. I adapted the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, actually, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, we had floor-to-ceiling wooden file cabinets that could do all kinds of tricks. Like you could pull on a file cabinet and it would be a stairs that came down. And I had no idea, you know, I had no idea what we were going to use that for. And that ends up sort of being a, being a guiding principle, rather than the sort of conventional thing, whereas you have to play Hamlet, and you then go go and talk to your set designers, and Hamlet requires this, that and the other, and you look for the actor who's best at Hamlet and the actor who's best at this. I- I- this it's all kind of like hopefully rising at, at the same time, everyone sort of discovering things sort of at the same, the same moment. Um, my happiest experience with that, in collaboration in a way with a set, was I also adapted <laughs> "Remembrance of Things Past by Marcel <laughs> Proust uh, into a piece <laughs> called Eleven Rooms of Proust in a 90,000 square foot warehouse where the audience went from room to room. And we had every rehearsal in the warehouse. And instead of me, like, staging something pretty and then my lighting designer comes in and lights it in a pretty way, my lighting designer was there every night throwing these strange shadows onto the walls and doing strange effects, and I would stage into those, so that hopefully everything kind of fits together. Can I keep talking, or if I talk too long? Yeah, (laughs) you're doing (laughs) great. In terms of collaborating with the voice of the text, the authors, I I feel like I've never sought collaborators, and I know how kind of spooky and this flaky this sounds, but these texts have always sort of found me. And my job is to sort of, I feel like I'm sort of getting out of the way. You know, as much as possible, I'm being conscious, And that's partly why I don't write in advance, and I only have a three- or four-week rehearsal period just like a normal play, because it's too fast for me to calculate. And I I don't want to be calculating to make it work. I don't want to be trying to fix it. I just want to be, like, urgently seeking a way to (coughs) express what what is in this text. It seems like it wants to come out.
7: Do you think of the actors as collaborators Absolutely.
8: Although not uh, definitely in what they can contribute consciously, physically, and in fact, uh, more than one of my adaptations include scenes in them that the actor came up to me. Arabian Nights. Someone said, "You have to read Aziz and Aziza, and and we have to do it." And that became a kind of that story became a centerpiece of the play, and in other ones too, they've said, "Aren't we going to do the, you know this mm-hmm. story that?" Because they're reading the text too. Um, they don't they don't write script, but I. I colonize them into the play <laughs> as much as possible. Like I I steal little things I see them doing on breaks, little interactions they have. I exploit like for instance, there's a, a girlfriend a girl of a friend of mine who's in a lot of my plays who Used to do something for her boyfriend called the naked dance, where she'd do this like little comic dance on the bed, and like I've had her do that in like four shows. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of thing that you know when you're working over and over with the same actors, even if it's an already scripted thing, you say, oh do do you know do the thing that you did that was so good, that was so funny, you know you 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 pull that in. But Mary, how much
0: preparation do you do? I mean, uh, you must know a year in advance. I mean, not
8: really. And to tell Hmm. the truth. I I I mean I do sometimes and when I cast the actors I know the big parts they're playing. Like when I did the Odyssey I knew I knew Odysseus and I knew Penelope and Telemachus. Beyond that, like who's gonna be Cyclops or who's gonna be all the sirens or whatever, that's an ensemble and that all just sort of falls out day to day. I actually only really read pr- the primary text. I don't cloud my head with other people's ideas about it. <laughs> oh,
0: but how far in advance do you read the primary text? <laughs> well, to text? tell the
8: truth, I've actually had shows scheduled because I liked the title, and I hadn't read <laughs> the book. I've actually pitched—I pitched a show, Journey to the West, because that title was so beautiful. And I knew one scene from it that my friend Bruce Norris, an actor, had read to me. And that one scene was like, I'm there. Um, another thing I, I did, called haft I called it Mirror of the Invisible World. It's a twelfth-century Persian poem. All I knew about it was I ran in, in the street into an actor named Paul Jamadi, who I bet a bunch yeah. of you know. He's a compulsive yeah. reader. reader. And he had just come from Coliseum Books, and he was carrying a book called um, haft And I read the back of it, you know, this Penguin edition, and it said, A man has seven wives and they live in a castle with seven domes, each of a different color. And one night a week he goes to each of them, and he hears a story in which that color is prominent, <laughs> and they are alternating tales of requited and unrequited love and that 's all I needed to hear i mean that 's all <laughs> I needed to hear and then and then I you know i take, take sort of what I want and, and don 't take what I want I mean I think it lives in, you know, in my in my heart in a really strong way, and I have a really kind of um, familiar relationship with books, you know, a, a close, you know. I had like a huge crush on Dostoevsky when I was fifteen, like literally like had sexual fantasy about <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Not really about Dostoevsky, but like Dmitry, and do I really like Alo- Alyosha better, Dmitry, but Dmitry's – I mean, you know, I actually had like schoolgirl crushes on, on literary figures. That's how I've, you know. Lived in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it certainly paid off
4: for the theater. (laughs) Well,
8: you know, people say to me, like, oh, you do such risky things and such obscure things. I don't know what they're talking about. Like, to me, these texts that have been around for 4,000 years, that's so, what are they talking about that that's a risky thing? It's awfully, you know, approved, it seems to me.
3: What about the water?
8: What about, like, where'd it come from?
3: No, I want to know how you get actors to go into the water. Oh, they Mm -hmm.
8: love it. You know, they're up for it. And plus, which fact, I first did that show at school where I'm a school teacher, and and (coughs) the students, you know, if you use young actors who have nothing to lose, they'll do anything. And and actually, (coughs) the method in which I work, oftentimes, I'll, I'll tell you a secret, people say to me, that show is so good, if only you had thus-and-so, thus-and-so famous actor in it, if only you had thus-and-so, thus-and-so sophisticated actor in it. And I, no matter how many times I tell them, the show would not happen with those people in it. They would never, ever agree to do a play without a script in which they didn't know what part they were playing or what it was going to be, ever. A- and you can't just then put them in after it's done. It's the spirit of mm-hmm. the thing that everyone responds to. I believe this. And sometimes I look at people I've cast and I think, like, oh, they're not the most sophisticated or technically perfect, but, you know, you respond to a lot of different things in the theatre, and the spirit of the thing is one of those primary things. And my actors are really game to get in, in the water. I mean, you know, they freeze and this and that, but they, <laughs> oh, they um, oh, darn. Oh, darn. But, like, tech for that show is a kind of hell, <laughs> because they're sitting in it eleven hours a day and the wa the temperature's dropping, dropping, dropping and you and get it's it up to a certain
4: level what yes. level do you get it to when you first it's start?
8: between well it 's actually contractual what it 's between because it can <coughs> be a contested thing um, but it's it's like ninety six to one hundred and two. But but you turn off the heat the moment the show starts, so the water temperature starts to drop at that moment. Is that
7: where you come in with the thermometer? And <laughs> <laughs> no,
8: but my stage manager does yeah. absolutely, and you know it has it's there's pool maintenance definitely yeah. with the net <laughs> and everything, mm. which is handled by the way by electrics. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can figure that out. Yeah. Electrics handles all things oh, to do with water. How
4: oh, hilarious! It's almost scary.
8: Yeah, <laughs> set handles the deck and props handles the pool liner.
4: Well, they've got it delineated carefully. John Guerra, I wanted to ask you about the um, process. I I understand that you do have the show opening at the signature of the play, but I am interested to hear something about the process of a book writer involved with a musical. You know, what is that process like for you um, over time? You've had a couple of different experiences with Kiss Me Kate being involved. with updating Sam and Bella Spuex work, and then now on uh, The Sweet Smell of Success. What is that process like for a writer? Well, it's a job. I mean, it's just great,
0: because it's, it's just great fun. I mean, when uh, I had written Two Gentlemen of Verona, the book for that by accident thirty years ago, thirty-one years ago, for Joe Papp and Bernie Gersten in, in Central Park, and it was designed to be written on a, to be played on a truck that went around. Uh, the. F- so like Mary, I knew we had to write something that had to could be set up, and it was written for. That also we the were
8: specific event the specific or place. event. If yeah. we had
0: done it on a uh, in a theater, it would have been a different show, and I don't know a show if I would have been happy with. Mm-hmm. But because it was written to be done on a truck, uh, with s- and so we wanted certain actors. It was going to play in every neighborhood. We said we want somebody, in the, then we want people in the cast from every neighborhood that we'll be playing in. Hmm. And luckily we got Raul Julia and uh, Clifton Davis and Dan, and. Uh, Carla Pinza, and uh, and in the tag te- in, in the show, we're cutting it down to ninety minutes. It's a very, it's if any other Shakespeare play I wouldn't have I wouldn't have tackled. But this is a very ramshackle, ramshackle. The structure is very ramshackle, and uh, they're not sure how much of it Shakespeare wrote, but passages that would are just beautiful. And so we had this uh, – Mel, uh, Mel Shapiro, the director, had this idea, brought me into in structure, because we had just worked on House of Blue Leaves, which had a far structure, and he wanted me to structure it into a ninety-minute event. And then we had this idea of playing out in the streets, noisy street, and it was a summer of great ra- racial unrest and, and, and turmoil, that how would people listen to this exquisite poetry? So we got this idea that Galt McDermott, who had composed Hair, uh, was going to be the resident composer that year. Again, just fortuitous, he was there and he was going to write some incidental music for it. So he said, wouldn't it be funny if the songs acted as, uh, acted as uh, subtitles before the speech? So that we would, the audience would know what the meaning of the scene was, it wouldn't be put off by the uh, I- I by the poetry, and mm-hmm. it's being Shakespeare. And so a couple of songs grew into thirty songs, mm-hmm. and a- again by being sparked by the cast, and, was, and it was a wonderful time. And then mm-hmm. it moved, uh, you know, uh, into the park and got great reviews, and then moved to Broadway. And uh, the main problem was I had to give it a much more formal. Opening and that, that the greatest problem was writing a formal opening mm-hmm. because it just you sort of ambled into it in the park, it was light and then it got dark. This way, it had to uh, it had to you had to the curtain had to go up, and there had to be a very, a, a very formal opening. And it was that was the most problem, That was like a nightmare to write the first 20 minutes of the play. And uh, but then we did one day, I mean, it was a nightmare because we couldn't we had all these fancy openings, we just and I said, I don't know what the problem is, I mean, we just want to show we're doing a – you know, it's just a play by Shakespeare that's nuts. And I said, That's <laughs> right. Wait a minute. Jose, and this is a great actor named Jose Perez, mm-hmm. this young kid. And I said, Just come out and bow. And the audience was, had tr- great trouble getting into the play. And I just said, Jose, just come out and say, Two gentlemen of Verona, a play by William Shakespeare, and hit your head. And he did. <laughs> and the audience went, Yay. And that was it. I mean, it was just that's what playwriting was, what book writing was. It was just giving the semaphore that let the audience into the world of the play. Uh, I did a, uh, and then I was asked to do a ton of musicals there. I won the Tony for that and was asked to do a lot of musicals. So one being, uh, it's still like a dream. I mean, it was to do a musical version. David Merrick asked me to do a musical version of Arsenic and Old Lace with Mary Martin, <laughs> and Ethel Merman <laughs> with music by Richard Rodgers, And, I, and uh, I luckily said no. I went off to Nantucket and started <laughs> in the theater. But I didn't do a musical until – a friend of mine, Roger Berlin, had a show called Sophisticated Ladies that was in Washington and going to close. And Roger Roger said, who would produce a play of mine, Lighty Breeze, and said, well, we should come see it. You know, the show is good, but it's just closing, come down and see it. And I went, I said, and I knew how to fix Mm -hmm. it. I said, I know what to do. And there was another choreographer there. and, And so we asked Roger, we said, if you close it for ten days, we promise we'll give you a show. And we just, we made a show up in ten days. And that's strangely I think what musicals are are about. Uh, then I had done uh, uh Kiss Me Kate was I'm not supposed to talk about that because I didn't take any credit on it, which <laughs> is how we got the uh, how we got the rights to it. Because it is Sam and Bellas View Act Show and we just there were things in it that were just the show had never been revived in 50 years, and there were things in it that just made no sense Bernard Baruch jokes. <laughs> and uh, what well, makes you laugh? So maybe we should have <laughs> kept this. <in. laughs> and it was a long, br- and Kate had no, had, no big, had no number in the second act except at the very end. And so I was just wanting to address as if keeping the show out on the road. And, I, and also, again, the director, I had wanted to work with Michael Blakemore, was a director I admired tremendously, ever since Joe Egg, which was profoundly important to me and a b- beautiful production. And uh, Michael was uh, was directing, and I wanted to work with him. So that was great fun to just – because a play is – a musical, a play is one thing, but a, a, a musical is like a great erectus set, a great contraption, and uh, where well, you have to solve you have to solve problems immediately, writing in a sort of in a semaphore style. And uh, I had – oh, well, one thing I forgot, I had written the book for a musical in 1968 and 86. We did the same show twice, with uh, Jerome Robbins directing music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. And it was a true nightmare, and uh, talk about a director being bored, Jerry Robbins, in we did a workshop in 86, If he wanted to go back to it again. And he did two scenes that were staggering, that, I mean, directors would build careers on. And he did them, and they worked, and Jerry tossed them out and said, let's start all over again. And so that recklessness of uh, the board director can be, you know, it can be uh, – that was – it was great, f- remarkable f- – Just it was, it was a nightmare experience. Because it was an adaptation of a Brecht play, somebody who defies musicalization, <laughs> and uh, but I wanted to work with Jerry, and uh, and it was a great, great, great experience, a remarkable experience, and uh, um, and then I, d- Kathleen Marshall asked me to, to fix, to patch again. It's patchwork on uh, for City Center encores. You've worked. You've done Babes in Arms, which is a great show. It's the definitive show about let's put on a play in the barn. And it was amazing that that was not much in the play. I mean, it's with the memories of the movie, are what, you know. Uh, so we, it was just rest- it was just patching that up to, uh, to make it be what we thought it was, to make the audience's expectations of it to, con- to conform to that. And then. Uh, uh, I was asked to do uh, Sweet Smell of Success, a movie that I love and revere, and uh, and the, the the producer then, Garth Drabinsky, uh, of a bankrupt thing called Live End, he was taken away during the first workshop, which was. And a whole other story, but very freeing. Uh, nothing I have your producer taken away by the police. <laughs> <here. laughs> You're know, having a nightmare. It was like a fantasy. A playwright standing Come and get him. Okay. Yeah. Get, I'll tell you where I got. But uh, anyway, it's. Uh, I love that, and I, I, I'm very proud of the musical because I think that I felt that it. Why it would be a musical was is that the world, out of which it comes, is the world of Times Square, and it's a dark side of Broadway, it's a very unromantic view of Broadway, and the life of, you know, of press agents and gossip and columns and the relation of the press and the insidiousness of that. Also the, the, the passions in it were so high that I said, this will for singing. And uh, so it was a very – and I wanted Nick Heitner to direct it, because of his work on Twelfth Night with Water, and, uh, and and Carousel, and uh, not Miss Saigon, but at least he had experience <laughs> with – you know, he was, uh, he was the director who had the range of work that I admired, from Madness of King George to, uh, to Carousel to, uh, uh, to Twelfth Night. And happily, Nick came on board. So again, it's always been a wonderful experience. I think that you have to work adapting a musical is a much more uh, – a, a joint effort, in a sense like working on Movie, when you're writing a movie, you have to scale back your writing because you just say, Well, the camera will take care of this description, the camera will do this, and I you'll <coughs> get too much of a muchness if, uh, if, the, if, um, if, if, the it's the same way with the composer. You say, I have to write this back because the music will take care of this. But you have to write what the scene will be and write the intention of the song so that the composer, Marvin Hamlisch and the lyricist, Craig Cornelia, will then take from that and write the song out of that so that hopefully the It'll be as the link between uh, – the gap between the spoken word and the sung word will just be invisible. <coughs> and uh, so it was a, uh, it was a v- great experience. We had – it would have been on sooner. We had to wait a year for John Lithgow. Everybody had different commitments, and we just kept, it, you know, piecing it together.
1: Did you, did you go back to the novella as well? Yes. The
0: did novella the novellas <laughs> had didn't give anything. Uh-huh. Because strangely, the, no- the novella and the related short stories are very cozy stories about these about Sydney and uh-huh. and JJ <laughs> traveling around, going up to Susan's uh, graduation from college, <laughs> and they're sort of like little <laughs> anecdotes. <laughs> they're like little anecdotes, and the story of Sweet Smell of Success is very. I mean, it's very close. I mean, it, you know, it's right. it's it's it's, clo- it's it's close. Also, what we remember, what also what I love, and what. Another, the sense of homage I must say in, in uh, Sweet Smell of Success was that what we remember is the movie is the extraordinary dialogue of of, uh, Clifford Odets, Mm who apparently was in a a van on Broadway (laughs) that you can see in some shots typing out the scenes (laughs) as they were, as they were filming them, and uh, so that's what what's Mm -hmm. missing from Mm -hmm. the novel when you read it Mm is the stories there, but the. The, the, the juice in it is supplied by Odette's is not there.
3: John, what is the role of playwright and director as you move from off-Broadway to Broadway?
0: I don't understand the question. Who
3: has, who has a say between the playwright and the
4: director? I
0: mean, Why would there be a difference off-Broadway or on-Broadway?
4: Well, in the transfer from an off-Broadway, I, I think what Isabel is asking is about, how does that transfer process work from off-Broadway to Broadway? Does the director have any more authority – we were talking ath- about the authority of the director earlier. But on a
0: musical or a play? I don't understand.
3: Either one. Does it make any difference? No. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, if you have rotten experience <laughs> off-Broadway, you're not going to have a great experience <laughs> on Broadway. But that gets to be an issue, it's, then it's, it's a play that's not going to transfer.
8: Mm-hmm. I guess I, I might say the one thing you could say to that is it's sort of the director's responsibility if the if the space is very different that's kind of his problem or her problem more than the playwright, wouldn't you say? I mean, but I
0: th- but I, I'll tell you something. I do think that it's because everything that ends up it's what the Dramatists Guild is about is protecting you mm-hmm. know that text, and I think that it would be within the the playwright's purview to say that if a play that he had written for a ninety nine seat theater was suddenly going to transfer to the Broadway theatre, you know, to the Gershwin, the 2,000-seat theatre, that I think that, that would, you would say, if you're just going to do that, to market it, that it would not, that you would have a right to say, my play will die there, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and you can't Absolutely. do it, no matter who, what star has come in. Right. And uh, so I think that the, uh, the relationship uh, – I mean, uh, in musicals, the relationship has always been – I think that the, p- the, the playwright, the director in a musical, is the king. Is the king because there are so many more aspects of the theater that have to go, that have to, uh, it, it have to be addressed. And so you have to have a director that you respect that you're, that you're saying, asking what are the requirements that you want. Uh, I think that in a play, I once asked uh, – I once – uh-oh, well, all those
2: – yes.
8: And that
0: happened to you it's in your so theaters and the Times today, yeah. about how your performance <laughs> was disrupted by that very thing. True. Yeah. It wasn't me, though. Uh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but I once asked Lanford Wilson, oh, it was a mess, I was trying – you know, I, I, I couldn't find a director to work with. And I asked Lanford, I said, how do you find a director? And Lanford said, he said, very easy, he said, I give them my play. And I ask them to read it, and I ask them to tell me. Then I meet with them, and I ask them to tell me the story of my play. And if the story that they tell me vaguely matches up with the story that I think (laughs) I've written, then I know we can work together. But that's all it is. I mean, it's you know, it's you know, it's it. The it's a a good production is one where everybody is involved in telling the same story, and uh, and that's a happy production. But I think in a play, that uh, it's much more. I, I do believe, as a playwright and as a council member of the Dramatist Guild, that the text of a play is, uh, is th- the key element in a in the theatrical production. And everybody is working towards that, including the playwright, towards protecting his own text or honing in on not changing gears on what he's – not rewriting his play out of his intention. Right. Or not allowing the director to rewrite his play into another play that the director didn't intend.
3: In casting? Does the playwright or the director work with the casting?
0: For me, I find that the auditions are the most valuable time because if it's, I, I think you decide the what the style of the text, what the style of the production is going to be from the auditions, where you say, oh, isn't it interesting that the way that, that goes, she's not right for the part, mm-hmm. but she found a laugh there that's very interesting. Or I like the way that he did that. Or I didn't like the way these people, I think, found it difficult, found the traps in the script mm-hmm. that we must avoid. Uh-huh. That this might be, you know, it, it can't get too emotional there. Or it has to, have, it has to be. It, you find the style of the play, for me, uh, evolves out of the, uh, the very collaborative uh, connection between the playwright and the director during the audition process. I
7: think that's true. I think very often, actors coming into auditions don't understand that. They think that the playwright and the director are sitting there very judgmentally about Mm -hmm. them, but very often, they're discovering the play (laughs) in that moment.
4: Um, Dan, you've had a lot of (coughs) success recently working with um, O'Neill in Awe Wilderness and Moon for the Misbegotten, and then Shaw with uh, Major Barbara. And you've had a lot of success, as well, working with new plays. You're noted for your work with new plays and th- the development that you did uh, at the Seattle Repertory mm-hmm. Theatre. How does, uh, how does that process for you as a director, developing a production, how does that differ, other than you can hear the playwright breathing in the room with you?
7: I, don't, I, I think it <coughs> doesn't differ at all, really. You, you can't make a lot of changes, <laughs> you know, uh, when you're working. Uh, with already extant work. But, uh, uh, you know, depending again upon how much work has to be done on, on any given script, the, the actual work of just digging and uh, finding the subtext is exactly the same, from a classic work to a contemporary work, a new play.
8: You know, I, I might get in trouble here, but mm-hmm. playwrights sometimes, uh, I forgive me, aren't the authority on what they write. In the same way when we describe a dream, we maybe aren't hearing. What we're saying sometimes, like, would you believe that a little bit? Do you know what I, I mean? I that think you that's you?
6: absolutely yeah. true. I, I mean, of well, of course, I mean, they're
8: the ultimate authority, uh, but you know what I no, mean. There's no, no, I, I have. That are unconscious.
6: Uh, you know, I, I write. W- you tend to write very much from from dream and image, and and in my case, anecdote and recollection, and and uh, not necessarily to ha- having a, a, a sort of entire vision of a. Narrative, you might have a vision of a world, but that's not the same as having a sense of a narrative and and what that entails and, and Or just it is in that moment
8: and, of auditions, yeah. I think uh, actors, when it comes mirroring back to you, or when the director mm-hmm. tells tells the story back to you, you do have revelations about oh that's why I'm drawn to this or that's what I was really saying but or, that's the yeah. great part of
0: collaboration yeah. where you have to be that open i mean you have to know where you feel when your play is working when the m- music right. of it is working you have to know what it is to protect because right. i think a new play i mean the play where it's going to be starting previous tonight is so new to, you know that i don't have it clear in my head what you just right. said you know and, th- and that's why the auditions were very Powerful for me in trying to say, oh, thi- this is what the and style then, like, of it has to be.
8: First preview is so much more terrifying than opening night because that audience is like telling you everything that you've forgotten during the rehearsal period <laughs> stuff that was funny first day and then hasn't been funny since. You know, stuff you thought was really serious turns out to be sort of funny and, or you want to get that under control or whatever. It's just so scary, first preview. I, I think, don't think so. Shaking. I you think,
6: know? no, I go on, I just shut everything off. <laughs> entirely, get through it, and, and move forward, f- knowing that it's going to take actors, for instance, at least five or six or seven times in front of an audience before they even feel comfortable enough to communicate yeah. what they're doing. I write off entirely the first audience and who would want to go to a first preview of something? (laughs) (laughs) You know, what kind of audience is it? It's a it's a room full of sadists,
2: generally
6: (laughs) you know, for the most part. You know, judging sadists. I'm very hostile to first audiences. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you there? (laughs) Well, <laughs> what else is there to being a playwright
4: but the fans? Yeah.
8: actually, I get no, so nervous that about <laughs> ten minutes before, I just lose all sensation and don't, I'm just nowhere, you know, barely there. Uh, what's yeah. your, uh,
4: sorry, what's your experience of that, Peter?
1: That I, you know, I think it's a little uh, bo- of both what Mary and Rob are saying. I, I, uh, I, 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 it's very, very terrifying for me, the first. The first, uh, the first preview. I should be able to write it off, but it's uh, it's it's hard for me. I, I I do think though it's a sort of a next step. It's an, it's sort of a clean slate in the sense that I'm there to sort of listen to what they're how they're responding, mm. and that's a whole nother another thing, and it's up there and it's it's not no longer in here, and but yet it's got to go back in there a little bit. So it's and it's also athletic. You know, you think, oh God, mm-hmm. how much am I going yeah. to have <laughs> to?
6: I end up watching Dan down. usually so because we usually do them together. And uh, I'll, he knows I'm watching him, and his hand will just go up, and there'll be a little scissors motion. You know, and also <laughs> in the whole first week, <laughs> and they'll just be—he's making a suit. <laughs> you <know. laughs>
8: yeah. But you also can't panic yeah. during previews no. and just keep rocking the yeah. boat every night, and so the actors always have new lines, and new, th- and then they never settle. You have to – because often, don't you find that there can be like something that seems like the most giant problem, but the actors eventually, organically, like the the irritant of sand in an oyster, make a pearl out of it. You know what I mean? They just coat it and coat it, and they smooth the edges and they, and they make it work, you know? But if you rock that boat every day, giving them pages and pages, and in some kind of panic. It, it does mm. take them days and days to yeah. get it in their in their bodies and make sense of it. Even though they're good at faking like that's true, but when they're faking it, it doesn't it doesn't work. And then so you make more changes or whatever.
7: In a way, though, your process from the beginning that's works right. on that yeah. kind of uh, uh, times, right? I mean, the, yeah. the, there's a little bit of. Get it done. There's the if you if you've got three weeks and you're, <laughs> you're starting from nowhere, right. you have got a got little panic going to begin with. <laughs> no,
8: it's total panic, and it's a high wire act. You're right, and and uh, it's changing all the time. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's not in front of an audience, and I'm not being judgment judgmental, not judgmental right. with them. You know,
5: gene nobody kid. said anything about the producers <laughs> or the people who put the money in the show, <laughs> and those are the dangerous people on that first preview. Because they – uh, what did I say,
0: John? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You've lost your audience. Oh. Yeah. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All this talk about you just said producer, Gene, and talk about first left. Yeah.
7: Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
5: right. I think it's the most <laughs> – you know, for a commercial production, I think it's the most scary of ever. It's because – talk about watching the other, f- the f- other faces, you see mm. these people who have put their money in it. Mm-hmm. And if, if life doesn't come, um, they are like <laughs> 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 um, they, they have terrible reactions, mm-hmm. and it, y- you can't help but be uh, uh, influenced by it. No, um, no, n- we're, we're patient. The, directors, the actors, and the, and the, the playwrights. But uh, they're not, because they're civilians!
2: Uh-huh.
5: And uh, I wish there were a way to keep them out, but… Uh.
4: <laughs> well, we'll try to solve that problem as we take a little bit of a pause, so that Isabel Stevenson can tell us about the good works of the American Theatre Wing.
3: Before we get back to the, <coughs> the American Theatre Wing, some of us are working in the theatre. This one is on playwrights and directors. I'd like to remind you that these seminars are only one of many programs that the Wing undertakes. You are probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards, given for excellence in Broadway theatre. We also have a substantial grants and scholarships program, providing aid to off and off-off Broadway theatres, as well as to promising students to pursue studies in the theatre arts. As a long-established charity, our other meaningful and thriving programs are designed to promote excellence in the craft of theatre and to introduce young people and their families to theatre and the magic it unfolds. Our hospital program, dating back to World War II when we also created the legendary stage door canteens to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, and child care facilities. We take pride in the work we do and remain grateful to our members and everyone whose contributions helped make possible the programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work is so important to the theatre and the community, and we're proud to be a part of this exciting industry. Now, let's return to our panel on playwrights and directors, and our moderator, Jeffrey Eric Jenkins. Jeffrey, would you like to start again?
4: Thank you, Isabel. (laughs) When we left, we were talking uh, just a bit. Gene Sachs had begun to talk about the role of producers in the collaborative process, if you will. We've talked about some of the collaborations between playwrights and directors, and uh, we've talked about some of the collaborations among the, the company. We'll return to some of that. But I thought we should return for a moment to talk about this relationship of the producers to the development of works. Uh, in, in, in the uh, commercial theatre. Uh, Gene, what do you think is, the, uh, wh- what is the, the, the drawback of the commercial producer? What is the advantage of the commercial producer? How does that relationship work?
5: Well, first of all, I wish we had a different word than collaborator. It always makes me think <coughs> of the French and <laughs> Germans. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and really we 're talking about people who help one another, <laughs> not who uh, n- who uh, kill one another <laughs> although that 's what producers and uh, directors and actors often do but uh, you know when I think about producers like David Merrick uh, that 's there 's a man who who uh, was a uh, dirty rat.
2: <laughs>
5: I mean, I'm sorry, he was, he was a terrible man. He <laughs> could, he, he could d- do the worst things so for you. You couldn't trust him for a minute, and he would get his way. And he would get his way because uh, he was strong, acquisitive, and uh, not stupid. Uh, He'd been in a playwriting
0: class with Tennessee Williams.
5: <laughs> yes, I'm, I wouldn't put it past him. St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> he <was a laughs> but he, uh, uh, w- the collaboration and the talk about producers uh, has to be, has to take into consideration uh, who's the strongest personality, who's the uh, one with a track record, who's the one. Who can get the money? Who is the one who is just a domineering personality? Uh, and and unfortunately, that I- often is the person who leads the
4: uh, the artistic taste of the show. Uh, well, of course, that's changed a bit in recent years. We. Uh, we often talk about the the loss of independent producers to mm-hmm. the producing community as more and more we see corporate entities becoming the producing entities and i 'm wondering, Dan, what has your experience been in uh, dealing with i 'm reluctant to say collaborating in dealing <laughs> with um, producers in the artistic <coughs> process and the creative process? coming, bringing the work to stage.
7: Uh, I don't know what it's like uh, with you, Gene, but I, I've <coughs> I found myself very often being a buffer between the producer and the writer, trying to find some way to keep the producer away from the writer, uh, uh, trying to find just sort of politically the, w- the way to navigate uh, through the difficult periods of previews when, as you say, a producer will very often <coughs> start to make. Uh, e- egregious demands on on the production. Um.
5: No, I, I think that that's uh, true, and I think because you and I are both kind, normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, speak for yourself. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: <coughs> wonderful people. Yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I've been I've been a buffer many times in that uh, situation. Uh, one play I did. Called Generation, uh, in which Henry Fonda was the star. And that's another thing we haven't talked about. Is the star actor or actress who is very uh, important and has a great deal to say, uh, whether they exercise it or not. That presence is is great. But uh, I, uh, I this was a first-time playwright. There was a strong producer who, uh, uh, Freddie Brisson, who <coughs> was uh, not a very good producer, uh, I'm afraid. But uh, he's dead now. I can say whatever I want.
0: <laughs> but he uh, uh, tell his nickname.
5: Uh, oh, the Lizard of
0: Roz. He was married to Rosalind oh, right. Russell. <laughs> the Lizard of uh, Roz.
5: Married to Rosalind Russell, and he was called the Lizard of. <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> <laughs> he was, too. Yeah, he was the son of Carl Bresson, the
4: uh,
5: entertainer, uh, a well, man re- who never got – out of his tails. <laughs> you raise an
4: interesting point in, in, uh, about the uh, the actor, about the the star actor, and I wanted to uh, ask – You're
5: trying to get me back on track, aren't you?
4: Uh, <laughs> Well, I you'll might never do it. You'll never hear
0: enough about Carl Brisson. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's why we're all here. <laughs> but I, do wanna, I wanted to ask Robbie uh, <laughs> about about this about the because. Game, but keep coming.
5: Yeah. Oh, let me finish the story. Uh, the story <laughs> that, that I started. I I just remembered that I uh, I had, had an ending. That <laughs> was a fir- <laughs> there was a, a first time playwright.
0: William Goodhart.
5: And yes, who is also now deceased. So we can talk about <laughs> all these people. Uh, but uh, Bill Goodhart had his own ideas since he wrote the play of what should be done. And w- one day, it actually came to a fist fight between uh, Freddie Brisson and Bill Goodhart.
0: Is that why he's dead? Um, <laughs> no, I was, uh, no I, I was
5: like a referee, mm. dancing between the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Fonda was why uh, uh, Fonda said. That's the last time I will ever do a, pl- uh, a play with a new playwright.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> he, he was, Who won the fight? Uh,
3: the playwright. <laughs>
5: no, he didn't win. No, I'm. S- he was lucky. He had Fonda, and. Uh, and uh, me, <laughs> uh, because I think we helped this play a good deal, but uh, we talked sensibly to him and, and uh, kindly, and uh, so and I think he profited by it. How? Uh, whereas whereas, uh, punched him in the nose. I mean, that's why I keep going back to personalities, and, and, and what a, a great part of our whole thing is, is, is collaboration. Is what kind of people we are, and how how we are, uh, how good we
4: are at psychiatry and uh, uh, morality. Well, that's. Uh, I wanted uh, Robbie to address that issue about working with star actors. Certainly, in Ten Unknowns, you had uh, Donald Sutherland and uh, Juliana Margulies in marvelous roles. And ha- what was that experience like? Certainly, had Dan Sullivan to uh, to work with them. But how does that how does that experience work? Perhaps you could both address that issue of, of working with a star actor. Do you is is there a sense that uh, that they have more sway in the rehearsal room? How does that um, – I think it I – don't,
6: I don't think about their status that much. I think about their sanity a lot, <laughs> 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 and, and, and their general um, ability to, to, to kindly cooperate and, and to be part of a process. And, and their generosity um, uh, i don 't have that much experience with with stars, um, but I d- the little experience I have with them is that they they, they tend to not like to being treated like stars, a- and I think the more that 's not a part of the equation, the the better things are um, it, it, you know. Um, uh, that was that particular play was not was not made easier by by some of the personality stuff, but um, i don 't think that necessarily had anything to do with starness I think it it had to do with with medication or something or the lack thereof I think also
7: uh, though that if you 're talking about you know film stars um, um, n- they're very often so used to a way of working, which is, uh, they're really in control of what they're going to say, <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, usually. Uh, so that very often, when they come into the theatre, they expect the same kind of input. And uh, I've often found, again, just uh, uh, it's important to be able to listen. Very often, the instinct is to say, well, I'm not going to be listening to this. I'm going yeah. w- to work the way I usually work. Sometimes you're working with very smart people, and the ideas are good. Uh, um, so you have to be able to balance y- your own vanity <laughs> against uh-huh. what you can actually learn. <laughs> to me, it seems that the difference between working in, the f- in th- films and
0: working in the theatre is that Alan Pakula told me that when he was making his picture, Devil, I forget, the Devil's Own, and out of the trailer one day, Harrison Ford came and said, these are the lines I'll be saying in this scene. And Brad <laughs> Pitt came out of his trailer <laughs> and said, these are the lines I'll be saying in this scene. And his Job was then to put their versions of the script, which featured both of them together, but it 's about the play and I think that th- I, I feel that we have to have a, a, a director who has a very strong rock <coughs> at the center of it who says this is the intention mm. and if the uh, otherwise if the star hijacks the show then it 's a mm. bad star then it 's something that 's gone wrong from b- from before from, from before uh, uh, b- before production started.
7: Ro- Robbie and I were working on a show <laughs> once where we were in previews uh, out in LA, and the, the star came in, very sweet woman, a, a, a movie star, and she had written. An entire speech for herself.
6: Uh, I still have it on my (laughs) bulletin board. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually great. I have to say, it's on you know Hotel de Cap uh, (laughs) stationery. Would this be an Ibsen speech? (laughs) It was not. It was actually one of my own, and it was much better than mine. uh, But it wasn't mine, and it went on. You know, it was very long, and and it involved several uh, grudges and scores she was settling off stage. (laughs) And uh,
7: I, you know, but what did we do? We just said, "Oh no, not possible." No. And and she was in re- that case very sweet about yeah. it. She said, "Oh, okay." Mm-hmm. I mean, she thought, suddenly thought, "Oh, I mean, I can't do that." Oh, all yeah. right, I won't.
6: But but <laughs> you know, in another instance, with another, I guess the tactful thing is not to say the name ever. Uh, <laughs> but it would wise. <laughs> I, I would know that. But um, the first the first day of rehearsal, you know, Dan and I are sitting <laughs> next to each other and. Dan's hand goes up like that, <laughs> <you know. laughs>
2: Lies. Little, little, little cut.
6: Little cut. So we talk, we sort of confer with each other, and a little two-line cut, and the the Nameless star put uh, his head in his hands, and went, uh, ugh! <laughs> 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 just you've eviscerated me here!
2: <laughs> <laughs> and,
6: and that, you know, you just know that, that, that you're – you know you're in for such a terribly bumpy ride. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, Peter, you've got a big star in uh, QED, uh, Alan Alda, and uh, how has that process unfolded? Now you're you're also a, a television writer and producer, uh, with a, a number of credits to you.
1: Yeah, well, QED actually, t- uh, w- Alan was always involved with QED. He he had an interest in in finding a way to put the, the character of Richard Feynman on the stage, but uh, I actually d- started out with uh, – so it was a job, to the extent that I met Alan and, and, and read the books, Feynman's books, and thought, I think there's a way maybe for me to m- make this work. I was, I was intrigued enough to try it, but not at all in the form that it's in. And in fact, it, w- it went through many, many drafts that had many characters in it, many that were on the stage in the play. and. Alan and I both, I think, sort of agreed from the beginning that that was the way it would would be. And he's an actor who likes working with other actors, and and likes the give and take of of that. And so – and I had no particular interest in writing uh, what what has almost become a one-person play. It, It literally astonished me how I could go through a, almost a, a kind of playwriting course of, of – I mean, I could show drafts that are complete, completely different drafts of, the, of, of, of what was on the way to being QED. And, and then, as it became what it became, it got a little scary, because then it became clear to us that it was going to be him and me and Gordon Davidson, the director, in the room together pretty much the whole time, except for one scene where the another character comes in. Uh, and then it then became about something else because I very much wanted to make, make sure that uh, that that every moment was <coughs> going to be right for the character and for Alan doing the character. So then the journey became even more rigorous in a way once we determined that was the way that the play was going to go. Um, so we we've uh, it's been remarkable with him and I, and I. Uh, he was ab- absolutely uh, a, the other collaborator in in that with myself and Gordon. Um, and the second act of the play, he really we did beat by beat on its feet. After I had a kind of version of it, uh, and and uh, Alan, every moment needs needs to know exactly where what wha- where we are, and we were sort of working through almost graphing through the emotional. The, the life of the, the character. So for me, it was very ex- ultimately very exhilarating to, to work that way. But, um, but it dis- certainly didn't start out. That wasn't the first w- the way we started out. Uh, to the we stars can out. be
0: great. John Lithgow is an ideal person that you wanted. I mean, not John mm-hmm. Lithgow is a perfect actor. He behaves perfectly. He is. Uh, I mean, sometimes you need a star, because they have an authority, they have a special quality and authority that makes them stars. But we have somebody who has that quality, as John Lithgow does, yet still the modesty, and as Robbie said about actors just wanting to be work, just get a script and work, work on the, on the script and uh, work on the text and listen to the director and the playwright. And uh, so, d- so it can be a remarkable, very, very uh, invigorating
4: experience. Is there a time when uh, those of you who are directing want the Playwright to go away for a little while and so you can work with <laughs> the uh, actors alone, or do you, you know, do you want that playwright in there all the time, feeding back in whatever way? And, wh- and what kind of feeda- feedback do you want the playwright to give to the actors? So it's sort of a two part thing. Dan?
7: I think the actors should, uh, the, the, the writers should be able to be there whenever they want to be. Sometimes I wonder why they're there. Uh, sometimes they'll just sort it's of. More s- fun than any place else
0: <laughs> well, to be. <do>.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
7: I mean, uh, uh, I remember sometimes with Wendy, who will, w- Wendy Wasserstein, who will be in the room every minute of every rehearsal through text, never leaves the room, and that seems kind of punishing to me in a way. It's not. I'll, it's I'll, I'll,
6: it's, I'll it's I'll that it's th- rare.
7: You know, yeah. it's, it's that it's not the real world, which is so you
6: know horrifying. Uh, It's that it's your world and you can't get enough of it, really. Uh, And and it's the also tech is the only
7: time I can sleep in my life (laughs) ever. But I also think it's it's uh, it's the the only time that I've ever wanted a writer not in the room is if there's too much writing going on and too much fixing going on at a time when you're really trying to get the thing on its feet and before an audience. Very often, that will happen just just as you're starting into previews in the text, when you see that the actors may be a little bit nervous, and suddenly they've got new pages, and could we just wait for a while before (laughs) we do this? Uh, uh, (coughs) That will occasionally happen.
5: I I had, uh, with Neil Simon, Very good experiences with that division of, uh, what would you call it? He he liked to watch the play from the standpoint of the writing, first of all, in that, to see if the scene worked and in rehearsal. And, uh, he would uh, say to me, "I don't think that scene is working." Right? I said, "I know, and I think uh, I can make it work." He said, "No, no, I've watched it. It's not your problem. It's my problem. I haven't written this. I, I want to go," and he'd go out and to another room and write something. Come back in a very short time, uh, usually with something new, which would work. Uh, not always, but uh, uh, most of the time he he'd get his he <coughs> he'd, he'd uh, find his way by listening to the rehearsals, mm-hmm. and I didn't mind that at all. There were other things where he was entirely impatient about things. For instance, uh, in, in in Lost in Yonkers, which is a good example. Uh, for many things, and I'll tell you. the uh, I'd stage a scene, and he's, he, he liked it, he thought it was fine. And he went out of the room, and I said, you know, I think she's being upstage, and I said, I'd like to make a different arrangement. The whole cast was on stage. I'd like to arrange everybody differently. And so, I was doing that, and I I did a different version of it. He came back in the room, and I thought he was going to kill all of us. He said, it was fine, perfect! Why are you touching it? Why? Damn it! And he walked out of the room in in, uh, complete anger. Okay, I'll put it back. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I lost my head for a minute.
7: I had an experience, like, uh, I mean, uh, just in terms of what that collaboration is, and I did one play with uh, Neil Simon, and uh, it was an example of how uh, a director and a writer don't work uh, well together, uh, only because uh, I spend maybe a week at the table, to begin with, and we're doing, I think, a thing called London Suite, Sweet- four uh, short plays. So we start out, <coughs> we finish the first day we the going we come back. We s- start again talking about the subtext. <laughs> he gets up, he's walking around the room, very, very uh, uh, nervous. At a break, I finally go up to him and say, what's, what's wrong? He says, I can't work this wh- – wh- I can't work, I have got to get it on its feet. Mm. Uh, 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 and that was the time I asked uh, the writer to leave. I said, okay, why don't you go away for – because I, I don't know how else to work. I have to sit here and figure this out. I can't stand up and start walking around unless people have some sense of who they ask
0: are. You before how you work, I mean, it seems mm-hmm. to be part of the things that
7: you would happen yeah. to talk with. No, no, we didn't talk about that. Yeah. We should have. Yeah. But uh, in fact, he did go away, and w- uh, we did our we did our work, and he came back, and we worked. But it was uh, it was not uh, from that time on. It was a little
2: wonky.
8: I'm actually having sort of, in a way, my <coughs> first collab collaboration in the sense, uh, in that I'm doing an opera with Philip Glass. So he's composing the music, and I, I primarily did the libretto. And uh, he's a perfect collaborator, in in, in my feeling, in that he's like, he'll make these little suggestions, but then he'll always say, but you'll do something wonderful, you know? You'll do something wonderful. (laughs) And and he's very passionate about it, and at the same time, sort of hands off about it. But I have had this weird experience where he was calling me, because he had me do the words first, and he wanted all the words before he started writing anything. And then he would call me, like, every morning at, like, 7.30, and he said, Yes, Mary, um, there's a problem, there's some problems I want to go over. You have the word, planet, can we make it planets? (laughs) And then he would say, you say, night and day, night and day. Can we make that night and day, day and night? And it's on that level, and this went on for weeks. And I was like, why is he calling me? And then I realized that he was being, as respectful towards the words as if they were notes of his mm-hmm. score. I finally sort of figured that out, and where I would never tell a musician, like, can we make mm-hmm. this a different note? He was treating the words the same way, but just that led me to all kinds of thoughts about there's a sort of a evaluative difference between words and notes. You know, a note. Is a node, and it can't be any other node. And you might say that about words, but these little changes meant nothing to me. And then he finally called me up and he said, "I have found a, a rather serious mistake in the libretto." And I was like, "Here we go. <laughs> Gonna have to like cut a whole scene and rearrange it." And he said. Sometimes, you capitalize sun and moon, and sometimes, you don't. <laughs> 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 so
0: but that's a that's big, like the but degree a big of – that's
8: difference. I can imagine
0: <laughs> a composer <laughs> responding to <laughs> the importance. There's a difference between sun and yeah, sun, sun. Yeah, sun.
8: I, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose that's correct. But I was like, you know, <laughs> can I get back to sleep? I mean, the, the <laughs> like, we could change that down the road, and he he had an urgency an urgency about all that, you know? But so far, he's been great, and it's because his visual sense – and I'll just say that – well, no, I can he, he has a very, 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 very large musical, oral sense, and his visual sense is a little bit more um, – it's a little – It's not as large, (laughs) and some of his suggestions are a little—you know—they're a little odd. Um, But he, you know, just hands it over in this really beautiful way. And so, like, he's coming for the first, like, four days of rehearsal, and then for tech, weirdly enough, and and previews, you know. But that's because that's when the orchestra comes, and he wants to hear the the orchestra. John, excuse
5: me. I just wanted to say something about the the actor's contribution. Uh, I forgot who said this, but uh, talking about good contributions that the actors have, good feelings about what should be, and things that bother them, that they want to change. And uh, often, uh, depending on the person, of course, it was very helpful. Uh, When I did Lost in Yonkers, uh, Mercedes Rule. Uh, was worried about her part, about uh, to the point where it drove me crazy. But in the end, I, f- I, f- I found out she was right. Uh, there were things in the end that uh, in the end of the play that had to be changed, should be changed. And I must say, she got her point across and. Uh, Neil accepted that Simon, and and uh, agreed. I mean, he didn't. He he saw it with the changes in, and said, "Yes, you're right. It's better."
6: Uh, unless and I think I've found that unless it's a, an issue of real vanity, which you can really tell pretty quickly, they're generally all. They're right, usually. Yes. Okay. Well, they have to yes. become
8: the authority on the, the part, you know, because they're going to play it night after night, and you're not there. And they're the one who's – like, your concentration's a lot of places, but theirs is there. Although, hopefully, theirs is on the story and not just well, their part. I'm working with Donald
0: Moffat right now in a play, and he just said, this beat gets in the way of my line." And he's he's been very, very right about making Mm -hmm. cuts that will allow him to want to see the way he works, what he needs for the part to remove these certain blocks. But
8: I feel like, sadly enough, our role as directors is to render ourselves obsolete. And at the very beginning, you're sitting amongst the actors. You have this physical proximity that's like this close. And then they start going up on stage, and you're sitting in a chair, but you sometimes leap up and go back. And then they're up on stage, and you're out in the house, and every now and then you go up to them. And then you leave the building, and they're mm-hmm. just there, and you kind of mate, you know, your job is to not need to be there anymore, to be forgotten about, in a way. and that 's it but then we reconstitute you know another family right away, and you know <laughs> I like That's the it. rehearsal process i I, I don't want to be an actor I don't, I don't like that the repetition of it I you know I just don't, don't want to do that. I like being in the room and having things happen and being there at the invention of the Have moment. you ever written
0: a play on your own? Or just written a play
8: sort of very close to it was still kind of based on something, but I guess all the words were mine yeah. It was based on. Um, on uh, the Pygmalion myth, actually. But, yeah, it was just in school. Yeah.
4: Do you do much direction of other people's plays? Or uh, very you?
8: little, just Mr. Shakespeare. You know, because that's always like, you just learn... I, I know it sounds corny, but just by that proximity to that text, you learn a, a lot, even if it's sort of you can't articulate it. Just You always find out, like, around the table with Shakespeare, like, oh, well, we'll cut this. Who needs this? And then you find out, mm-hmm. oh, the reason this little servant, or so these lords are talking for four lines, is because every actor is backstage changing for the giant ballroom <laughs> entrance that's about to happen. And I always I have a friend who says that he can just see these actors on stage, you know, at the Globe, going, Will, I can't make the change! I can't make the change! You <laughs> have to write, so he's like, "Okay, here's some more <laughs> jokes." <laughs> yeah. You find out like how for the theater they are, and you learn a lot about like structure and just a whole a whole lot of things. And I've done a few, a couple other things, like I did a, um, a Tom Stoppard play, who I was always a, a huge fan of too.
4: I'm interested also in in how playwrights develop, where they get their ideas. Robbie mentioned earlier uh, something about dreams, and I'm wondering how your dreams. Come to the stage. How you dream your play? Well, it's not, it's not literally. I don't, don't course. write from of like course.
6: you know a dream journal or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> maybe I should. <laughs> but um, I I, uh, I tend to work from anecdote and from memory a lot, uh, and and from uh, I, uh, about some time ago, I was listening to a radio report about about psychiatrists and how the American Psychiatric Association had a, had a war with itself in the late 60s and early 70s and a- and they th- there was a s- series of interviews with <coughs> psychiatrists and it, it seemed enormously theatrical and it got me started writing something which in fact wasn't really about psychiatrists but was about the thing they were arguing about which is mm-hmm. a definition of illness a defin- a patho- a definition of uh, of how we pathologize people and what it means to be segregated against. So, I, I also I think I'm I think I'm struck very much by 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 uh, by painters' work, uh, and then and that, and the the stories that painters tell um, that somehow lead to larger uh, uh, questions. Um, but. Um, <coughs> uh, you know, I'm. There are different kinds of writers, and and I, I might it might be easier to be the kind that that you know uh, reads about how the you know the, uh, the the code got broken, and then writes that play. But that's just you know that ain't me, and um, so I don't
4: know. Yeah. Pe- Peter, <laughs> Peter. How does how do how do how does what you imagine how does what you dream how does how does that come to the stage? What, yeah, what well, makes I you think yeah, about these? Write, I also write don't, these
1: don't keep a dream, a dream journal. <laughs> I, I think I I, uh, I do I read a, a lot and absorb, I guess, and it, it, there it's a slow can be a pretty slow uh, how it comes in. I, I don't I don't I never really thought about what it, what areas except that I know that history. Lately, science, separate from QED, I've been working for a number of years on and off on a play that I'd started before QED, that that has is his- has history and a lot of science in it. Uh, and it may be that uh, some I, I'm, I'm trying to find something that I don't understand, that the, r- that the process of writing is sort of trying to help me to understand, and it usually isn't until the end of a first draft, way later, that I will say, oh, well, I guess that's what this Play is sort of about, and then the rewriting will be to help me get to make that better towards what that is. But
3: for our students who want to follow in your footsteps, could I ask a quick question? Where did you come from to be a playwright? What 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 came before?
6: I, I came from from Los Angeles, and which and and I didn't want to be a movie writer, but I was a r- and and all plays I think are self portraits. So you have to have this temperament that is involved in in portraiture, I think. Um, where am I now? How do I locate myself? I think that's what, sort of almost what Peter is saying. Um, but I, I – you know, I, I don't know that there's, there's school, though I think there is, and it's mm-hmm. I, and I, I think the, the great thing about being a playwright is that it's not something that you need ask permission to do. You need not train, and you, need, you, know, you don't have to ask other people. You, you almost uh, – uh, it's entirely self-motivated.
1: So mm-hmm. that's how, where I come from.
3: Where do you come from?
1: I'm, I grew up in Douglaston, Queens, and my, my, my parents are still, still there. I go out there as, uh, a lot. And I came into the city from when I was very young to go to plays and, uh, and, and see plays, and I, I can remember those that were particularly extraordinary to me, that felt like they were life-changing, life one of which was um, house the original production of House of Blue Leaves, which I, along with Joe Egg was two, two great, extraordinary uh, experiences for me.
3: <laughs> oh. <laughs> John, what well, do you have to
0: say? You just want to make. I, I, you know, I, my, writing is my job in the theater. I love working in the theater, and and playwriting is my job in the theater. I, I like the W R I G H T, the fashioning. You know, I like to make something that connects to an audience. I like making a theatrical event. But if I couldn't write, I'd work in the theater. I don't know. I've sold orange juice. I've checked codes. I mean, I'm serious. But I'd love. I'd love working in the theater, and uh, th- that's my job. And just to keep.
3: I hate to interrupt you. This has been so wonderful listening to you, you share your knowledge so generously with us. But the time has come for me to say thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Mr. Jenkins. Thank you. And thank all of you for being so very kind and generous to the American Theatre Wing. This has been one of the seminars on working in the theatre coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Thank you so much for being here.